Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Danica. And we are biracial unicorns. And we are the only resolution you plan on keeping this year. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Please? Keep I, us? <laughs> no. I'm actually, you know what? This is going to be awful. I thought this was going to be my happy place. But like, isn't everyone their best selves for January? Do you know what I mean? Like people who are always like late to work or they don't drink enough water or have a vegetable, like suddenly they're everything they ever wanted to be. And for January, I feel like we're our best selves. And right. I mean, we're we're halfway through January now. So I think we've already lost some people. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I hear what you're saying. I don't I don't know if I'd say it's people are their best selves, but it's people are their most optimistic selves. (laughs) Ooh. I do like that. And people do, they believe that it's, this is going to be the year, right? Mm. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to drink water. I'm going to do all the things. Mm, all the yoga. <laughs> I don't know. If you're doing that, if you are on that, tr- like, keep keep it up. That's encouraging. I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm also saying don't commit to, like, losing weight. Commit to, like, saying no to chocolate. Yeah. The more specific your resolution yeah. could be. I'm not really a resolution person, but I'm definitely a a plan for the year and for the future person. No, you're hardcore. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I also like I I am pretty into yoga. Mm. Um <laughs> uh it's a little embarrassing. Um <laughs> why I feel like that kind of lends to your character. Like I don't yeah. that wouldn't be like, oh what? She's flexible. Right. No, I'm into yoga, but I don't like going as much in January because it's too full. (laughs) There are too many people. (laughs) That is the most truth we've ever dropped on the show. (laughs) It's like college. I was like the worst person in college because those first two weeks going to class because everyone's attending, right? You're like, oh, drop out already. I need a parking spot. Right. I would like say that out loud in school and it was awful. But here's the thing with both college and yoga is like, I want, I want people to go and I want people to do it, but it's just also at odds with my like antisocial tendencies. Of, <laughs> I, I want, I want a bigger bubble around me while I'm doing <laughs> these things. Thank you. Yes. You want it all for 2019. Danny wants it all, but but I was. That's my good. that's my resolution every year. I'm gonna get it all. <laughs> she wants it all. I um. <laughs> it's um. Everyone now, you know, we talked about we let too much of ourselves. We reveal. People need to know. I won't make a song out of anything, and so now now I've been revealed. But we did some traveling over the break, ish. We did. We did. I feel you went to Japan, which is pretty badass. And it was amazing. I was in Japan and mm-hmm. you were in Barcelona. Yes. You're supposed to say it with a lisp if you say it in Barcelona. Bar- Barcelona. I don't know. I, Bar- if I Barcelona. Barcelona. There you go. Barcelona. If I say it, I feel like I'm mocking them. So I just don't. I've never been to Barcelona, but I've been to Spain. And mm. I absolutely thought I was going to like hate the lisp, but I love it. I think it's awesome. Once again, if they do it, it's, I was watching a lot of like YouTube videos as one does before they travel of people like do's and don'ts because I was attempting to not make a fool of myself. Um, But people who are not native speakers doing the list was like, ooh, ooh, I don't know, bro. I don't know. But it was, it is really, really, really beautiful. It is, um, in, insanely cool just to hear like I said we're used to Spanish in New Mexico which is like Spanglish and has a lot of slang and uh, you know what I mean like it's beautiful beautiful like yes yeah, I feel like it's very different I will say the Spanish that my family speaks like small town New Mexican Spanish mm. is a lot closer to Spain Spanish than Ooh, Mexican really? Spanish or what we learn in school here mm. So that was a an interesting thing when we visited Spain. That's really interesting, but it definitely made me because I've been gone from the desert for so long. I definitely are like, mm, ooh, girl, you rusty. Like I was really, yeah. really rusty when you're just not immersed in it all the time. Not that New Mexico, we're always speaking Spanish to one another, but it is very, you know, like 
we all know it to some degree, even though you're like, you know, we took French because we're cool in high school. <laughs> we did take t- French. We true. did. <laughs> and then I took sign language in college because I hate using things that are practical in my day-to-day life. Well, I, love- I mean, I majored in Japanese, so. We're you know. so cool. <laughs> We're the coolest, but I'm excited to get to this question. I feel like this is the pinnacle of what we've been working towards for like the last handful of episodes. I don't know how you feel, but I'm so pumped. I am both pumped and scared because it's <laughs> it's large. I mean, it's always large, but mm. there's a lot to talk about. It is. So let's do it. Yeah. I I mean, we also have that freedom. If you feel like there's more topics of this particular topic you want to go to, we're bracing yourselves. We're already pre-warning you. Jump in. Tell us. We need more. But this topic came out of a question I was asked, both written and in person, which was quite um, not a coincidence, I feel, in my opinion. Uh, Can races be racist against themselves? And I actually, I don't know if you have been asked this, but I have actually been asked this, like specifically towards me, can black people be racist against black people? It's so loaded, isn't it? It is very loaded and it's, it's complicated. So for me, when thinking about this question, the best way to deal with it, I think, is to go into this idea of colorism. Mm-hmm. Um, which for people who haven't heard of the term colorism before, it is what it sounds like. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's relatively new in the grand yeah. scheme of things. Alice Walker coined it in 1983, I think, was uh, yeah, her, like her book of essays. She had like a book of essays. In one of the essays, she she used the term colorism to refer to kind of internal racism, people within the Black community being essentially racist towards each other based on the color of their skin. So kind of an mm-hmm. internal racism. But I think colorism today kind of is a a larger term and is not necessarily just limited to to in-group racism, but rather just this idea of judgment and discrimination based off of your appearance. So the color of your skin, but also like your your facial features and your the texture of your hair and all those other things that that point to race. Uh, it really does. Yeah. Like hair texture, I know, is, is a really, really big one. And just even just stature, you know, um, Alice Walker, like I said, even though it was about the 1980s, she, she is the, the author of The Color Purple. If people need a better idea of who this woman is, she really did coin it and really kind of go further into what it looked like in the community during like a post-civil uh, civil rights movement act. But of course, this has been something that's been around uh, much, much longer. We're talking about during those over, you know, 246, 250 years of enslavement, predominantly in America, specifically just in, in America, we're talking about we have immense amount of slavery. And then, of course, what are you going to do with that? Then we have to start intermixing and making people of different shades. And, of course, those who are lighter skin got to be more uh, house Negroes and be closer to the master and have it slightly easier um, as opposed to those who are darker, stronger features we've out in the field. I was watching a, a group of women kind of talk about this. And the, the curator of it basically was saying, I'm like, yes, there was there. It kind of started in the separation. But she's like, especially for women, in the end, whether you were in the house in the field, we all got raped. You all got used. You all got worked. It was just quicker and faster um, access to it. it. It is a very strong, painful history with with colorism we just finally had the word for it in the 80s right and i think in a lot of ways colorism i i mean you'll hear me go back and forth on this several (laughs) times i bet in this episode but i think colorism in a lot of ways is a an easier way to think about racism as a whole because there's always this this talk about race is a is a social construct right like race is is quasi scientific classification um Mm -hmm. but it's it's a constructed thing and it's often really only visible on a government form and those government forms are very limiting right like the official Mm -hmm. racial categories on the u.s census are black white american indian 
and then Asian or Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. So those are like the official races. And so for people like us, people who are mixed race or people who maybe present as something different than than what they are, racism doesn't fully encompass their experience in this country, right? Like colorism is a huge part of it. And a person's skin color is really an irrefutable visual fact. And you can't hide it, right? You can't hide your skin tone. So there's like a... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's like a there's a range of experience within within a race. Your color really like you can't you can't change that. No, you you really can't. And the reason why I think we were both really kind of excited and scared to bring this up is because we are kind of the problem. We are part of of that privileged view. I think we would both kind of talk about with with like I said with the brief history of it and the fact that it is not just an issue in America I mean we could both sit here and list from everywhere where they're having it but we're, we're saying that we're speaking from people who are part of the hue and part of the um of people who also struggle very very much so with their color and how they are presented how they are perceived in this life as far as race goes so um, you probably have a little bit more of a global um, influence with with colorism yourself, because I know we're going to speak on America quite a bit, but I think it'd be really interesting to get a more global perspective of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, colorism isn't unique to the U.S. by any means, and I feel like it's actually quite global, <laughs> No, totally. And I can't really speak to every part of the world, obviously. I can only speak to the parts of the world in which I'm familiar. But I think in in Latin America, I've heard people say that, you know, Latin America is post-race, right? Because there people are so mixed race throughout mm-hmm. Latin America. Colorism is a huge, huge issue. So when you're talking about white and black in Latin America, you're really referring to a person's skin tone rather than like in the US, we, we use white to talk about Caucasian and we use black to talk about African American. But in Latin America, it's talking about actual physical skin tone. So I've definitely known Brazilians who are like, I'm white, whereas like in the US, they would not be considered white. Right. Oh, I so know. I think that that's really really interesting. And there's also this idea within Latin America that money whitens you, right? So people with Mm -hmm. higher economic and social status are able to claim a lighter color identity than people with the same skin tone who have fewer monetary resources. So that's a very different sort of system than what we have, because in the US, I don't think that's, that's as true. You know, like a a, a black man who is rich is just as likely to get shot by the police as a poor black man. Yeah, so but I within his think... own community, they might renounce him of his blackness, mm. though. I oh, that's like, true. Yeah, that's true. You know true. what I'm saying? Like, if you look at, like, uh, th- there's definitely some very affluential. I think I, I would say this is probably the time I'm going to rag on the men or, you know, stick up for them, I, I should say, is that I do feel <laughs> like I know I'm so used to the other way that I'm actually saying, no, I'm trying to be helpful. But, you know, if, you know, a black man has a little bit of coin and especially if he gets a woman who is lighter on his arm, well, all of a sudden, you know, he might as well be a white man. He gets renounced. I mean, like, what was it? Uh, Tiger Woods. That poor man. Not that I'm giving him any kind of like, you know, scapegoat. I'm not getting him a get out of jail free card for all of his hot mess. But, you know, I don't I don't know if the community ever said like, no, like. That is a black man. Well, you know, that <laughs> that also becomes, and I I want to talk about this a little bit more more later. But that also is like part of the performance of race, which I think mm. falls into colorism. Right? He's he's a golfer. Like, yeah. is there a more white sport than golf? Um, <laughs> so it's in the name, the name yeah. has made it up completely. But the, the, but that's the hard part. He went and did something um, proficiently and was, you know, very groundbreaking. But because of that, he gets renounced of his blackness. You know what I mean? He went and, and married, you know, a, a white woman at, at first and he's in golf and performance. So but it's that money. If he never made it, would he have been a black guy? But it's that money that makes him very, very different. That sets him apart. But it's um, it is interesting where that umbrella of uh, colorism 
really it's yeah. a very broad spectrum isn't it yeah and perhaps money i think coming back to wealth and money it does whiten in a sense but i think what we see more often globally certainly in the us but also globally surprisingly is higher class more wealth tend to be lighter skinned um even in mixed cultures like take mexico right mm-hmm. The lightest skinned Mexicans tend to have more wealth, tend to have um, more education, and it, it's all correlated uh, mm-hmm. with skin tone. Uh, and and we see it, we see it globally for sure. I don't know. It's it's and we see it a lot in the U.S. We do. Well, it's part of the privilege, isn't it? I was watching a video about these women who are Filipino, which once mm. again, like my ignorance is showing. They have exactly what you're talking about, like a woman who is like a dark skinned Filipino woman. She gets ragged on, you know, she can say you are black, you are dark skin. And they're saying that in areas of the Philippines, you know, if you are light skinned, you are more revered and you actually get better opportunities and better jobs and, and better education. And you have a higher friend group and, you know, you are really sought out after if you are lighter skinned Filipino and, and here we are in America, I'm like, you know, even the, those who might be on the darker spectrum of Filipino or still we would, we would not consider to be dark skin, but within their own culture, I mean, they would, you know, they were talking about you know, people kind of being like, Oh, you're, you're so dark. You're never going to find makeup or you need to do this. Or here's a skin lightener. And it mm-hmm. is very interesting uh, about that completely. I feel like I have re- like, yeah, just really opened my mind up to it. That reminds me of, um, in in prepping for the episode, I I read a bunch of studies about this. And there was this 2013 study that was talking about discrimination in education based off of skin tone. And it actually, this is is a key difference between racism and colorism, I feel like. Uh, White people can experience colorism even if they can't... experience racism. Um, And we can go more into that in the future. White women experience discrimination in education at similar rates as African Americans do. Um, So white women with darker skin graduate from college at lower rates than white women with lighter skin. Are you kidding me with this? No, it's true. It's true. Or at least... Based off of this 2013 study, and they use spectrophotometers to to measure skin color. So it measures, you know, mm. waves of light and stuff. So that that was like their objective way of, of measuring differences in skin tone. So they mm. took a huge number of people and compared all these results, and they found that. Um, but was, what was really interesting about that is while white women experienced that that disparity, white men did not. So once again, you know, <laughs> white men, all the privilege. I know, guys, like, white guys, we're not, like I said, we love ourselves some white guys, but come on, like, this obviously. is the research. We're, I, obviously, we're not making this up. Like, th- these are people who have dedicated their lives to this study. So, and, and I mean, colorism is is so often gendered, mm-hmm. not even just talking about just white people, but because it's based off of visuals and physicality, it has this unique relationship to to what is beautiful, right? And exactly. women are the ones who who bear the brunt of that, of, of having to be beautiful more so than men do. Oh, so yeah. it has this tendency, though it's not exclusively, it has this tendency to affect women more often than men across races. Yes, definitely. I mean, I was looking up and trying to do some research about it. I was telling you about in the the Asian Pacific area, they're talking about like anywhere between like bleach treatments and creams being a $13 billion industry. And they're talking about in America, it could be reaching over to be $10 billion. And here I am thinking like, that's very rare. That's only for the extreme cases. Do you know what I mean? Like extreme body makeover. Like, you know, when people are trying to transform into geckos. No, right. like this is becoming, like, you were, you know, where it's getting into our lotion and on our, our exactly. It's yeah. sneaking into everywhere. When when I lived in, in Japan, that was a real concern um, because you go to the drugstore and 
a lot of the beauty products have bleach in them, have skin mm. bleaching agents in them. And there I was, you know, 21-year-old Danny, who uh, <laughs> perhaps didn't know as much <laughs> Japanese as she thought she did, and goes into the drugstore to just buy some lotion. But there's this fear because most of them have bleach. So there I am, like, looking at the ingredient list, looking for the character for white to make sure that it doesn't have it in there. Yeah, no, it's it's like a real thing. And, and I think it's so... It's so deeply entrenched within Asian cultures also that that idea of um, fairer skin is more beautiful. But I know in Japan, it has such a long, long history, right? Like you go back to the to the Nara period, which is like the 700s um, and and court ladies would just like cake on the white powder on their face to make themselves look beautiful. So it was always kind of this idea of, you know, the court, the royalty had fairer skin and they wanted to emphasize that because they aren't the ones outside working in the fields all day. So they're naturally going to be lighter skinned. Right. So, and then it becomes like selective in that idea. And even in all of like the writings from a little bit later, the Heian period, which is after the Nara period. So around 1000 is when the world's first novel, The Tale of Genji was written. (laughs) (laughs) And it was written by a, a, a woman. It was written by a court woman in Japan. And she talks a lot about the women and their appearances and, and the white skin and all of that. Um, and I think it's interesting, too, because um, oftentimes the word white is used to describe skin tone or skin appearance um, in Japanese. Like we in the West think of Asians as having or told that Asians have yellow skin, right? But Which, no one uh, no one in Asia calls their skin yellow. To this day, I will never understand that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the word in Japanese that they use for skin tone more often than not is hadairo, which is um, skin color. Like it, you would translate it literally as skin color. Um, yeah, and so, or like flesh color. Like I just, right. I will never understand for, but, for the life of me. But white is used sometimes too to describe skin, skin tone as well. That's really interesting. I guess interesting is a very lame word for this particular topic, but um, all we just wanted to make sure that we put an emphasis that it is not predominantly an American problem. This is this is with the, a human race problem, and so uh, with that said, let's. Um, I think it'd be really great for us as mixed women to share our own experiences. I don't know if you have personal stories with this either you feel like you actually gained privilege or you feel like you have been at a disadvantage because your particular color or features or I mean, what, what has been your experience? Mm, well, I mean, this is, this is partially a mixed, a mixed race generally thing, mm. but I am very ethnically ambiguous in my appearance, right? Like I love it. <laughs> I am. I am ethnically ambiguous. People uh, never know my race and it's, I mean, They'll, if they guess at all, it's Asian, which I've talked about before. But so as mixed race people, we we can pretty easily hide our ancestry, depending like how ambiguous looking we are. But we can't hide our appearance. So while mm. I I am ambiguous, I am also ambiguously brown, right? I yes. I have like a medium skin tone, and I have facial features that are clearly not Caucasian. My hair maybe can pass as white. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I think for me, um, the the asset in that is that I am ambiguous and the label that people put on me is Asian. And Asian is kind of (sighs) the safe minority a lot of the times. <laughs> so, so like, Who knew? right. I'm sure there's some Asians out there being like, are we? What? <laughs> right. So, so in terms of colorism, like, like the assumptions that are made on, made about me based on my appearance tend to be like, I'm smart. I'm sweet. I'm quiet. So, I mean, there, there could be worse assumptions made about me, I guess. Yeah, totally. <laughs> But you never get accused of being a hood rat. I mean, that's good. Though you should because right. you're from New Mexico. So that's, that's true. But I mean, like within, <laughs> I've definitely been in in situations where 
even though Latina is such like a huge range of of people, mm-hmm. right? And we should we should recognize right now, like I am on the lighter skin range of that. While I I'm not like white with blonde hair, I'm also not like black or very dark. And especially right now in the middle of the winter, my skin is very <laughs> Like, I, I always think that I'm very white in the winter, but then I see my skin against, like, a white person's skin. And I'm like, oh, no, it's still brown. Yeah, <laughs> but, that's uh, how it is with my daughter. I'm like, I'm like, oh, that's my very be- my, my beautiful, fair-skinned child. And then I see her with English children in the middle of winter. I'm like, now she I. Oh, right. there she is. <laughs> yeah, but I definitely have been in situations with other Latinos where assumptions are made me not belonging tends to be a thing but at the same time you know like i get the privilege of also not presenting as as very too brown um i'm safe just brown (laughs) enough and i guess there's there's this idea of the fields in which i work tend to be predominantly white spaces. So I spend a lot of time kind of occupying these white spaces where I don't quite fit in, but I'm also not scary. And there's there's this like critical race theory, right? Talks about this idea of covering, I guess, is is what one researcher calls it. I think um Kenji Yoshino. It's a it's a Japanese person or person of Japanese descent, at least, but covering, right? So it's this idea of if people see me as a whatever, then um, and being a whatever in the society has negative connotations. And I have to convince people on a daily basis that I am either not that whatever at all, or I am the good kind, right? That does not fit negative stereotypes associated with being mm. that. So the theory is that like racial identity is also partially performed, right? So like if you have interest in white things, it makes you less less of that race and, and, and kind of counteracts some of that that appearance based stuff. And and while I don't know if I necessarily like white things, there are definitely parts about my my identity that might be a bit of performance to fit in that I'm not aware mm. of. Uh, I just think naturally by having mixed parents, you are really exposed to uh, just d- different interests and likes. Uh, for example, my dad, big music lover, he's really into uh, funk and R&B and jazz. And so I grew up with uh, George Clinton and Graham Central Station, Earth, Wind and Fire, a great, great foundation. But my mom, who also enjoyed that kind of music, she also really enjoyed musicals. Like uh, she loved Camelot. She introduced me to The Wizard of Oz. She liked Neil Diamond, Jim Croce. And because of that, the music I like tends to be quite eclectic. And being a musician, sometimes Mm. I'll play like folk music do you know what I mean right because of that, I think it does put people at racial ease they're like oh she's not that black she plays folk music it's uh it does kind of set people a little bit like ah oh, she's she's all right or they you know it's palatable you know what I mean yeah no definitely and and I think that goes back to the the performance a little bit because like I th- and Tiger Woods, right? Tiger Woods plays golf, which is seen as a white sport. <laughs> like you like musicals, which is seen as like a white person thing. Um, you know, so it makes it makes you a little less scary, I guess, to to the I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I this is the way I describe myself and my experience. I tell people I'm like their gateway black, mm. you know, uh, and, and it sounds like I, I make a joke of it all the time, all the time. I tell people I'm like their gateway or their entry, their um, entry black, because a lot of people have told me, you know, you're my only black friend, which shame on you, you're missing out. Um, And uh, like, it's one of those things. It is a backhanded compliment. It is like, I'm I'm glad that you have a safety with me or my, my color or race does not offend you or scare you. But on the same token, it's realizing that on the spectrum that I'm, you know, maybe medium or slightly darker medium. I have a different texture of hair, um, where, I, where I grew up, my interests, even the tone of my voice might be slightly more um, comforting or does that make sense? Easy for you to 
to get along with or to find something in common with or acceptable mm-hmm. or even beautiful. You, you know, it's one of those in my experiences, I've had to kind of admit to myself because in my mind, I don't feel like I've had a lot of privilege. Like I get followed in the stores just like everybody else. I get pulled over for no reason like everybody else. Um, But when I have to step back in my own ignorance and just realize that um, my really good friend who is, I love him to death, but he's dark. He knows he's darker and will be places and there are people who will not acknowledge him, but speak to me. And I know it's not because, you know, I'm awesome. Far from it. It is that uh, I have lighter features. It might be a little less intimidating or, or scary. And I have seen it time and time again. It's um, in my mind, you know, people telling me there's no parts for you in shows because of I'm shorter, I'm rounder, I'm browner. But at the same token, I look at, well, there's not particularly a lot of beautiful mahogany skin women and stuff either. And so right. it's definitely been... Uh, a challenge with this. We're both performers. So I think for me, like being ambiguous is is both a blessing and a curse as far as performance goes, mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm ambiguous. I could be anything. But it's also like, no, you don't look like Latina enough to play Latina. You don't look, yeah. you know, white enough to play white. You don't look like you don't really look like anything. So it's hard <laughs> to cast you as something. But it is rough. We all have that struggle. We talked about, um, I was uh, listening to uh, this article about colorism from Dr. Cheryl Grill. She's talking about, it's about an experience and, and how you were treated. Like it's predominantly for like a black person or a person of color. And mm. um, for those who are mixed, it really is about an experience. And, and that is, I feel like that uh, very much of the heart of it. Like my experience is that of a black woman who I've had guys tell me to my face, like, you're great and all, but I really don't date dark girls. Do you know what I mean? Right. But then from the community of women who are actually legitimately dark and beautiful, looking at me like, girl, you have no idea. You know, but this is for me. I remember when I was younger, oh, gosh, I was staying up way, way too late. And I watched, um, like, a behind-the-scenes stories, a biography about uh, Josephine Baker, the um, the French mm-hmm. performer. It was American, renounced. Do you know what I mean? The the banana uh, banana dance woman, you know? Yeah. They were talking about how sometimes she would rub her skin with a lemon to lighten her skin. Yeah. And I remember like middle school, D'Amica thought that was the best idea. So probably I would ask my mom to buy lemons. She thought I was like eating them because, you know, it's New Mexico. You have a little lemon. And I would take them to school or before school and I would like rub my skin like almost raw because I was like, I want to be lighter. And I did that off and on for like years, baking soda and lemon. Because I thought, oh, this would make me lighter. And telling that experience of like, well, in the eyes of a black community with your hair color, your hair type and features, you're already light enough. It is a very weird place to be in, in my own personal experience. I feel like we were talking a bit about like perceptions in like white communities, but then there's also like the internal perceptions like you were saying, you know, within like a black community, you're less dark, um, even though you're experiencing like from the outside, uh, th- like you being darker. So I think like for me, I went to a very, very uh, brown middle school, right? Like pretty much everyone who went to that middle school is like 98 percent um Latino and a lot of people from Mexico, in fact, like immigrants, a lot of immigrants in my school. And so I was regularly called white girl in school. And it wasn't my skin tone necessarily, though I think maybe that's part of it, maybe a little bit of my appearance because I I am mixed. But I think a lot of it was back to this like performative thing, back to like my interests. Like I I pretty effortlessly did well in school which sounds like a humble brag and I really don't mean it that way um, <laughs> say it girl just go ahead no. and like I smart I was way smart <laughs> I mean I was smarter than I am now um, but weren't we all yeah it's true but you know like I'm I'm the type of person who like does well on standardized tests I guess oh 
of those. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a great skill to have in, in the real world, I don't think. Uh, no. So should it be a measure of <laughs> a student's success, I don't think. Uh, but because I like, I did well in school and, and I liked, you know, I liked doing well in school. I was seen as, as a white girl. Um, so, you know, like I... I was also a weirdo, so I was bullied. But one of the main things was I was called white girl all the time, which is hilarious to me now, considering <laughs> like. In future, we're probably going to diverge more into colorism in media, you know, uh, music, Instagram, movies, video games, definitely the beauty industry. We're coming for you, beauty industry. Um, but we just really kind of wanted to share like our own personal experience of like the being mixed women in in this so danny i don't know do you is there a solution is there is there wh what do we go this is such a deep rooted um pain this is a very divisive pain um what going forward like what next we can't just sit here and say this is our experience like what does it look like as a community as women who are beautifully ambiguously brown in this spectrum with our privilege what what next what do we do I don't know. <laughs> like, I feel like the solution for, for any colorism or any racism is number one, like the first step, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge it, right? Like we mm -hmm. can't even, we can't even start to talk about, about things without acknowledging it first. So I yes. think this is not just for women of color, even just for women, but I think this is a general note for everyone okay 2019 what i yes. really don't want to hear is i do not want to hear anybody say i don't see color ever again or yeah. say i'm colorblind or say race is a social construct or you know like we're all one race like i don't want to hear i don't want to hear that ever again no no burn it burn it to the ground yeah, I, I agree. I completely agree. We need to start with consciousness. We need to start with with mindfulness. I, I was several articles and doctors all saying it starts with a consciousness. It starts with a mindfulness. It starts with that knowledge. But no, death to it. No more. Yeah, I feel like colorblindness and those things that people say, like we're all one race. Those things don't mean anything. It's just like a thing that people say because it sounds good. Are you really telling me that you don't don't see that someone is different from you because what I hear when you say that is I hear you saying I don't see color because when I look around all the people I see are just like me so to me what it says more is that you just surround yourself with people who are more like you and also that you are not acknowledging me and my identity like important aspects of my identity um, and you aren't going to acknowledge how that part of my identity influences the way that I move through the world and the way people treat me. And if you're not acknowledging that for me, like how much worse is that for somebody who is darker than I am? Because I have experienced the privilege of being medium skin tone as opposed to dark skin tone. So like, it, so uh, it's so frustrating for me. It is. No, no, no. I, girl, I, I feel you. And I'm glad we have been, Danny and I, you know, off, off air have been talking about this topic a lot, specifically um, this, I, I don't see color where our, we are human race. It is humility wrapped up in a little bit of laziness. And like right. I said, I'm never the kind of person who just says a blanketed statement, um, but it is. And, and I will tell you, this is how I feel because I love food. I'm going to put it in a beautiful food analogy. We have oatmeal and I love oatmeal and I know you can dress it up, but just go with me here. We're talking about plain Jane oatmeal. We, we have it in front of us. It nourishes us. It's good for us. It's great. There's nothing wrong with it, but color-wise, texture-wise, after a while, it's, it's just a one-note kind of thing. And there is a world out there that has spice, flavor, seasoning, sweetness, sour. There's all this out exactly. there. And you're telling me that you are just seeing everybody as oatmeal? Stop reducing my color to oatmeal. Because let me tell you, my color is not my end-all to be-all, but let me tell you, it explains why and how I go through this world. Don't tell me that my experiences as a woman who was beat up because of her color, because she was raised, who was called the N-word at five, who has all of these experiences because I walk with me, 
and how I do life. Don't tell me that you don't see that. Don't. Don't tell me that you don't see the texture of my hair. Don't tell me you don't see the freckles on my face. Don't tell me you don't see my dark brown eyes and the history that goes along with them. These are the eyes that have been handed down from my grandmother to me, to my great-grandmother to me. Don't say you don't see that because you are missing an amazing flavor. You're missing out on a banquet. Now, you can say I don't treat people differently because of their color. Let's change our, our language, okay? I understand what people are trying to say. I really, really do. I think it is, we talked about that dangerous place but in, in wokeness, didn't we, before, where you're kind of in between, right. like you're kind of kind of waking up. That's actually one of the most dangerous places because you kind of, you mm-hmm. can easily stay there. Mm-hmm. You no, know, you need to be wide-eyed, fully awake. The world is full of beautiful hues with stories that you're not even reading because you think the covers are enough. It's not. Pick up that book. Pick up that person. Invite them to your table and ask them about their background. Have these hard conversations and say, you know what? I see you. And that's everybody. We've been looking at, uh, Debbie, we're talking about that Afro-Latino uh, movement in that. Let's in those races, those two of them been like, both are a part of me, open those up and let's just see what we find because we're going to find something worthwhile, something meaningful, something impactful. I think this idea of colorblindness also, and more often than not, you'll hear white people predominantly talking about colorblindness, which, you know, it's like their privilege to be colorblind because they live in a society that is mostly reflective of their own heritage. I feel like this idea of colorblindness is really dangerous Mm. in its growing popularity because colorblindness will transplant racism, right? But really, it's it's not. If, If we're talking about just colorblindness and people all looking the same. We're not actually erasing colorism, right? Because like we talked about, it's so ingrained around the world. You might think that you're being like, I treat everyone the same regardless of how they look. And that's just absolutely not true. And (laughs) as we move, move towards a more mixed society and a, a society that has this wide variety of colors within it, it's it's harder to address those systemic issues because there's less group identity, I think. So it's it's harder to stand up for just yourself rather than standing up for a group. It'll it'll be a shift in the way Americans talk about color and race because it'll be similar to the way Americans talk about class. We don't have real meaningful discussions about class most of the time. No, because we assume everyone's middle. Yes. Yeah, we have this structural economic inequality, but most people still think of themselves as middle class. So they think of themselves as operating outside of the system. Um, They're like, well, I'm in the middle. And that's not true. It's not true Mm -hmm. that 90% of Americans are middle class, you know, so we can't Mm. actually talk about real class issues. And I think that we're going that same way with color, right? And race, Mm, like we aren't going to be able to talk about these things when people just think, oh, I don't see color or I'm in the middle of this. We can't have actual meaningful discussions that matter. It really stops us from being able to talk to one another about how difficult it can be to live in this country Mm -hmm. and to live this experience, right? Completely. And so I think we can agree that, so what... I love I love talking about these things and I love this particular podcast because like I said we want to talk about solutions or ways to go forward more than anything because mm. it's really you and I are not going to crack this nut not today no. but what we are talking about so what isn't the answer is colorblindness but we're talking about things that can help we're talking about conversations yeah conversations definitely can help for me this may come off kind of uh, corny but uh, I just wanted to do like uh, an open letter to predominantly women, because, uh, you know, I am one. It's easier that way for me of uh, all races who are our darker shade and just want to, you know, apologize and lift you up for every time you felt you were um, underrepresented and overlooked for every time you felt someone lighter skin was put in higher favor 
um, anytime you were said you didn't have good hair or your features were too strong, your, your attitude was too much. I am, you're beautiful and you are respected and you are desired and you don't need somebody in a podcast to tell you this because you should already know this and I'm with you and I'm for you. And there are a lot of people who have a lot more say and sway than I do who are for you and in, in this together. I don't think it's a solution, but I do think we cannot forget where this came from. When we talk about from all races, have a story. And mine particularly started off with, with racism. And I'm never going to forget that. And if we remember where we come from, we can remember the goal that we have. Despite our shades, we're in this together. Because even amongst ourselves, if we want to classify, the world will all see us as one way. That we're different. And I, I promise you, there are more people out there making podcasts, making vlogs and blogs who are going on to the movement. And that's just what it is. And it starts off with a conversation. So I'd love to have a conversation with you. If you have been hurt or bothered or angry, because let me tell you, I'm angry too. Like Danny and I would love to hear from you. Uh, we'll talk about how to get a hold of us from that. Or even if you just want to uh, say something in hashtag biracial unicorns, what well, we want to hear because we're not afraid of a conversation. I'm ready to start it. I know Danny is as well. Yeah. And I, I would like to add to the other end of that. So for for those of you who hopefully aren't still sitting here thinking you absolutely truly don't care about the color of someone else's skin. Um, <laughs> but but if that's if that's kind of where you're at, think, you know, I I try to not let this influence me. I'm trying to be open to other people and other experiences, like create that space to have meaningful conversations with other people mm -hmm. about their own experience. Also, like really start to think about how many people of different colors, not even just different races, but different colors are, are within your circle, right? When yeah. you reach for the phone to call one of your dearest friends, like who are you calling and are they a different cue than you are? Because I feel like exposing yourself to different people with different experiences is really the best way to open your eyes, right? And if you are colorblind, then you need your eyes to be opened a little bit. Yeah, wake up. Yeah. And then I, I just wanted to also make a, a quick note about this idea of race as a social construct, which which kind of drives me yeah. a little crazy. Like I know I'm gonna release the Danny on everybody. <laughs> She's been holding this back for so <laughs> y'all don't even know. Girl, I, I feel like it must be in a pit bull fight. I'm just letting you go because just just go for it. Okay. So I'm for it. You know, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna hold back just a little here. But <laughs> but so I acknowledge race is not a real thing. Biologically, it's not a real thing. It, it is, in fact, I guess you could say it's a social construct. But when people are talking about it being a, a social construct, I feel like they really are focusing on the construction part of it, right? Race, yes. it, race doesn't exist in the body, but rather it's it's this product of socially produced understanding and culture, um, which, okay, fair, like cool. that, that yeah. but I think the focus should be instead rather on that. It needs to be focused on the social aspect of it. Yes, it's mm -hmm. an invented thing, but your focus on how to deal with race should be on the fact that it exists within society, right? Like we all exist within society. So we all are our experiences are entirely colored by how we exist in society. So race is something that is put on you often by others. You are constantly being racialized by others. And if you are not acknowledging that that's a real thing, then I don't even know how I can talk to you <laughs> because you're <laughs> well, just yeah, totally well, yeah. erasing a huge part of, of my experience and a huge part of lots of people's experiences. Exactly. They're taking away their experience. They're, they're saying that what is not inside of your body, how you're walking in your life is null and void. I'm like, well, th thanks, buddy. Biologically, I'm set, but I still can't get a job because my last name's Martinez. Like, exactly, buddy. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's just one of those things of uh, it is. It's so dismissive. Mm -hmm. I'm like, are you are you happy that you sound smart? 
thank you for right. breaking me down to, you know what I mean, to to these cellular issues. But this is how I'm still walking and I can't hide my melanin. So thank you. Right. Thanks. Bud. And yes, we are <laughs> we are all human and we are all one people. But, you know, like we are a tribal species and we look at each other and we decide how we fit in and how we don't. And it doesn't change the fact that, you know, like we can say race is a social construct all we want, but like you have to really look at it and look at the implications in our day-to-day lives. Like the Lion King, right? We we are <laughs> we are <laughs> Mika. Girl, don't you don't you open up the Lion King if well, you're okay, not ready. I just I just want to say one 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 thing How about dare you do this at the end when we're trying to wrap I know, up. I'm you sorry. know I'm gonna be hurt about the Lion I know. King. You know I know, I'm, I'm so sorry. But just one quick thing about the Lion King. Like all of the good lions have light fur and blue eyes, and all of the bad lions have dark fur and brown eyes. Like <laughs> most of the world has brown eyes. Damika and I have brown eyes. Okay. We I are, know. We are bad people. And you know why the lions Don't look that way? It. You know why the lions mm. look that way? It's because white people Uh-oh. drew the lions. Colorblind <laughs> white people. <laughs> Don't get me started. When people were upset that, that Disney didn't have like a black princess, which once again, that is a story for another day. Right. They're like, you have the Lion King. What about Nala? Well, she's a lion. <laughs> and... <laughs> This was this is a real comeback. And I'm just like, are you are you kidding me? They're like, this amazing African movie. I'm like, Jonathan Taylor Thomas was the voice of young Simba. He's black though. Oh, I, I guess anyone who works with Tim Allen is now black. Evidently. I don't, I don't yeah. know. You know I have hurts about the Lion King, but they're 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 trying to they're redoing it. And I'm excited. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm also scared. Yeah, I think that's where we all are with The Lion King yeah. and Aladdin. I think that's where we Girl. all are. But let's not talk I'm about so it. Scared. It's too much. It's too much. No, it is too much. Okay, here's to come. All right, so colorism in a nutshell. Uh, we defined it, a little brief history of it, our experiences with it. There is no solutions from our mouths, but an encouragement of conversation because I believe that's where we're going to have power. Stop saying you're colorblind um, and we're scared of Disney. I think that's yes. a pretty good summary. I think that is a great summary. <laughs> I've, been try- I've, I've been really like, we have to really end with a good summary. And I felt like that was a really good, I felt like, yeah, I nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so now that we're all summarized, let's uh, talk about our happy places, shall we? Yeah, we really do. Because honestly, I don't know about you. Like I, my notes are like, there's still so much rage. In oh, I know. I but didn't I, even hit all of my notes, actually, but that's no. okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll be hitting this topic again in more like specific areas, and I look very much forward to it. Maybe they don't, but we, we do. do. So conversation. <laughs> so, what was your happy place so far in mid mid January? January. Um, so, I feel like I've done a lot of TV happy places, but I'm gonna just keep that ball rolling. No, go ahead. Be you. It's particularly strange because I don't feel like I watch a lot of TV necessarily, but I guess I get a lot of a lot of joy from from television. No, be you. <laughs> yeah. So my happy place right now is Brooklyn Nine Nine. Have you seen the show? <gasps> Girl, I'm already I'm like rewatching it for like the third time. I I did not think I was gonna like that show at all. Yeah. And I so I've been in the habit of like SNL characters that I can't stand on SNL, but they get off of SNL and they're hilarious. Like Jimmy Fallon, I totally ate crow. I'm like, what is, what is the thing? Why do people like him? And now Andy Sandberg, same thing. I'm like, I mean, he's okay. He's all right. And then they do this, like their own thing. And I'm like, I do you like it because you're you identify with Rosa? Is that oh my God. Is that what Thank you. <laughs> is that is that why? Is this because like uh, well if, yeah, partially. If April Ludgate had a baby and like with Rosa, it would make like a beautiful Danny. Yes, yes. Um, and I love that you say that, particularly since my husband says I'm Santiago. <laughs> like I want to be Rosa, but I'm Santiago. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But because that, but guess why he said that? Because there's actually quite a fair amount of diversity on yes, that show. Yes, and, and see, that's what I love. Um, so I... 
I think I've said this on this podcast. Maybe I haven't. But I'm just like so done with white Hollywood. I'm over it. And I don't want to watch any shows with like predominantly white casts anymore. I, I just I don't when there are other options out there and good, good options like Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Mm. It's such a diverse cast. And like the characters are so diverse, right? We have uh, mm-hmm. from so many different racial and ethnic backgrounds. I mean, it's not totally inclusive. Like we don't have an Asian character. No. We don't have a Native American character, or at least not in within the main cast. I'm only in season two. So I'm watching it for the first time. Oh, oh, art girl, you'll do you're just gonna like just lap it up. And it's just like, it's just an easy, like, gentle, the world is hard. Like my husband, and I when we've had like a crazy week, we're like, do you just need some nine nine and wine? And we just get our basicness on. Yeah, no, it's, it's and funny. And it's escapism. And it's easy to watch. Right. And the writing mm-hmm. is good. It is so funny. And it really is. And what I but what I really like about about the characters is they are they are diverse, but they aren't like stereotypes of their diversity. Yes. Like Holt, who's the captain, is a black gay man. Oh, yeah. And like he doesn't hide the fact that he's a black gay man. It's not like incidental to the character. It's not like a side thought, but you know, it's part mm-hmm. of who he is and he occasionally talks about his struggles within, you know, this racist homophobic system in which he has had to rise through the ranks to captain and he talks about that but it's like not the only thing about him right like he's a fully fleshed out believable character who is not just like the token gay man or the token black man yeah it's really enjoyable like it's one of those things of like it is easy like my i call it like baby food for your brain but it's so much more than that. It really, really is. And I, I really applaud the producers and the writers because I think it's showing where we could go. You know, if we have women, we, we were talking about this the way, like the women characters actually have like lines and stories yes. and depth and, you know, punchlines themselves, but they're not the butt of the joke. Exactly. Do you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like for uh, the goofiest characters are actually the white characters, um, which is <laughs> the kind white of old characters. Yeah, the white old guys. <laughs> Are like the funny, the funny, like really goofy, silly guys. So that's nice. And it's not in a way that I feel like is disparaging towards white people or anything like that. It's just like, no, they're kind of old guard, weird, weirdos. And then I love, I love the Latina characters, which I've already kind of touched on, right? And I identify mm-hmm. with both of them. Like Rosa Diaz is like, tough and private and sarcastic and morbid and just wonderful mm-hmm. and without being like sassy latina yeah spicy, ni- neither of them are, are a fiery sassy latina which is great because i feel like i'm not really a fiery sassy latina like i am in the uh, way that i don't know <laughs> no i feel like <laughs> i think your husband disagrees <laughs> You're fiery. Well, maybe, maybe a little bit. But I think, you know, like I find both of them very relatable. And like the fact that Amy Santiago is a total nerd and a total teacher's yeah. pet sort of type of person is is really refreshing to see for also kind of a nerd who was called white girl because yeah. of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I I love the characters. If you haven't seen it, like I dragged my feet on watching it for a while because I thought that it was going to be like I I didn't think it was going to be what it is. Like I didn't realize like that it was yeah. such a diverse cast. I didn't realize that it was so funny. Like you don't think that cop shows are going to be anything except a cop drama, but it mm-hmm. it's it's a f- somehow managed to do a funny show about cops in which the cops are like good at their jobs yeah they're not just like it's not the whole like naked gun they're fumbling inspector gadgety kind of thing where it's like how did we get the criminal guess we got this murderer right they're actually all great professionals and it's like what we can have it all girl wait till you see santiago you get to meet her dad and it's everything and you're gonna really enjoy that (laughs) yeah so that's that's my happy place uh what's your happy place Oh my gosh, yours were so cool. Like, I feel very intimidated by your happy place. I, um, I'm a big, like, I think I mentioned before earlier in this podcast, uh, I'm a musician. My husband's a musician, which makes us eccentric and weird. 
and um, we went to a, a conference and it was like, you know, for worship music and music production and songwriting and, and all of this it was an all day thing. But I went to a seminar about songwriting, which I was very um, wary about because mm. it's like teaching people how to write a song. Either you can or you can't. It was just one of those things. Anyway, the, the woman who, who led it has been writing songs, really upbeat. And I love that she just owned the fact that she goes like, I like pop songs. I write pop songs. That's who I am. It's what I enjoy. And she's just very unapologetic, which was so refreshing. Instead of trying to be like moody and hip and deep, she was just like, this is what I enjoy. That's not probably what you enjoy. And, but she had like, gosh, like 12 tips on how to kind of get like the motors running or construct and ideas. I actually really enjoyed it. That was like my happy place of just like different exercises for songwriting, even for people who've never written a song. I just feel like there's a lot of people out there who enjoy writing or journaling. I know like journaling is a multi-billion dollar industry right now. That's crazy to me. Isn't that nuts? Like it's making so much money journals and people make their own journals. So if you, even if you're not a songwriter or a journaler um, doing some of the exercises of just like picking an object, like an apple and setting a 10 minute timer and writing about the apple and nothing else about the apple. And they're thinking like, Oh yeah, easy, but actually try doing it. I'm not a real musician, but you know, I, I, I dabble. I'm an artist, so I dabble in all the things. I love that word. I dabble. I dabble. (laughs) I have played with with songwriting, and while it is intimidating and scary, I oftentimes realize it's not as difficult as you think it's going to be. (laughs) You know? No. She was saying you have to be like, don't be afraid. Like, the first thing was you're going to write something bad. And don't be afraid to write something bad. And then she was like, go write something bad. And there was something so freeing about it. So my happy place this week was just like getting back into songwriting, finishing up some things I have written instead of being so intimidated by it. But like I said, those who aren't even songwriters, I know there's people who are really good writers in general or just journalers just like try even look some writing a song exercises up and it will just be a lot of fun or listen to loop tracks or and write lyrics to it and be ridiculous I got to the point where it's like I can make up a song about anything but I mostly make up songs about like with my daughter because that's what I do I'm like giving her a bath I'm like getting this shampoo out your hair getting that shampoo out your like that that's like that's where I'm at in my mind mentally. And I felt like that's all I have to give the world because my brain is mush now. But it was actually really inspiring. and It was really encouraging. And I was like, oh, this is a, has definitely have to be a happy place because, you know, I normally mention you mention TV. I normally mention like food. So, yeah, <laughs> I have to get out of <laughs> though. I was really tempted. <laughs> right. And and I, I think that that's awesome because conferences can be such a a crapshoot right sometimes they're so awesome and inspiring and sometimes they're just exhausting I was terrified because it was like there was an hour for lunch because the the English don't enjoy eating and um but it was like from the moment you 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 got there at like nine ten o'clock to like six gosh six seven o'clock it was like go, go there was no schedule breaks at all it was like workshop lecture talk lecture work and it was just but it was actually really I mean I was absolutely exhausted but it was really interesting got to meet so many I love living in England for the sheer fact of like I met this beautiful woman who was uh, from Cameroon but spoke perfect for like English is like her third language but she spoke perfect English and she just looked like a Disney princess come to life with the most beautiful mahogany skin and I was so intimidated by her, you know, her deep beauty. I was like, oh, my goodness, she's too beautiful. <laughs> like, mm. She's talking to me. Do you know what I mean? And just meeting people from, like, you know, Argentina and the Caribbean. And it's really interesting seeing these people with, like, an Argentinian British accent. Or this woman who was um, from Korea who has a Korean British accent. And it was just so interesting. But we were all there, you know, in our eccentricness writing, like, our songs and she did something our the leader of it did something very intimidating which you can do this at your next party danny i have another thing <laughs> tell everyone to wi- no i have this is scary and i actually i'm gonna do this at my next party she made us get out our phones 
and open up like your your Spotify. Most most of us is Spotify. Open up your Spotify and read out your top ten most recently played. Mm. And she, it was like, it was very, like, who wants to share? Like nobody wants to share that, right? No, I, I challenge people when you get together with your friends, have a coffee or you're having a dinner party or whatever the cool kids are doing. Everyone's going to be on their phone anyway, when they should be engaging. So at least if they're going to be on their phones, say, open up your Spotify. What were your 10 last recently played? And you're going to learn something about somebody you did not know. So there we go. That's a two for one. That was a happy place and uh, I don't know, a fun thing to do. I don't, I have no clue. A lesson in friendship. (laughs) (laughs) That's too scary. I don't, I don't think I want to open that can of worms because then I'll have to share mine. I think that might have to be an episode now, but it has to be, but it has to be brought up randomly. Like we can't just, you know, feed it up. We have to like, I might have to be like brought up randomly, like Spotify checklist. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to weave that in somehow. Yeah, we'll have to see. It, it might, I mean, mine might be entirely uninteresting when we record because we we generally record um, in the mornings for me and the evenings for you. So, mm-hmm. and, and on the weekends. So I often like to take a, a bath on a week <laughs> weekend night um and i'll just listen to like instrumental stuff on spotify so it'll be like <laughs> pretty boring pretty boring things i don't i don't know i think that'll make you seem really intelligent <laughs> i have a mixture of like kid stuff and old stuff mm. and some angry i mean stuff. i say because my husband and i have the same account. i say instrumental but like the playlist I most often listen to is like Japanese lo-fi hip hop. So it's like not <laughs> instrumental. I don't know if this is going to make it into the show, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I don't know. This might have to be something else, but I don't care because I'm enjoying it. I definitely took a bath this week and listened to like my favorite murder. And it mm. was like, I did think I'm like, it's not, it's not a ghost story, but Danny would be yeah. proud. No, I'm proud. I love killers. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a dead body in a barrel. And I thought, oh, somewhere Danny's really proud of me that I'm listening to this while I'm trying to relax in my casa. So, but. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I guess that's, that's it, right? <laughs> On that note, <laughs> dead bodies. And- yeah, de- definitely. Dead bodies and barrels. Yes. <laughs> and, if, and if you just skip towards the end and you, you missed all of that. Um, we're not going to re-explain that to you, but if you want to email us with some rebuttals or questions or just asking us what, what's next for the podcast, you can email us at biracialunicorns at gmail.com. Yes, and you can also message us via Facebook or Instagram. We're on both of those things at biracialunicorns. And let's see, um, hashtag us. I love to hear like hashtag. We had a couple of people who added us for something about oh gosh what was it for i think it was culture appropriation versus appreciation and that was really really cool and um yeah have conversations people and tell us yes about please them. do and thank you to dolly pop art for podcast artwork and thank you to joseph scott for our lovely theme music and i'll link to both of those people in our our show notes Follow their stuff. Awesome. All of our stuff. Yes. All right. So uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Peace. Out. Out.